reading from John 7, 53, 8 through 11. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The word of the Lord. Here I am, God, arms wide open. Just close your eyes and pray that as you sing it. Here I am, God, arms wide open. Pouring out my life, gracefully broken. Let the Lord have it your own heart right now. Here I am, God, arms wide open. Pouring out my life, gracefully broken. Father, we thank you this morning that you are present among us, that you are here, here close. Am, you are not a far God, distant God. You are a close, personal God. In the midst of so much trouble around our planet, around our country, around our city, around our own neighborhoods, you are with us, and we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity to come together and worship. We thank you for all those who have gone before us, for the crowd of saints that has lifted you up. We stand on their shoulders this morning, too. And we thank you that we're not alone. We need you, Lord. We need each other. Be present among us in ways that will change us as we walk out of here today. Grow us up to be more like your son. And it's in his name that we pray. And all the Lord's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated in his presence. Thank you, worship team. Uh, they are uh, doing such a great job in taking us into the presence of the Holy Spirit every week. I love what they prepare. Uh, they look at the messages coming up in our series. We're in God's handwriting, as you might know, for six weeks. This is the, the penultimate week, uh, and it's the penultimate means the week before the final week. Uh, and I just love using that word, Yvonne. I just, when else do you get to say penultimate? I mean, that's, this is the time. So use that word. Everybody say penultimate. It's the only time you'll use that this week. But here we are in the next to the last of God's handwriting. And church... A little windy on this mic, so we might have to do something with that, but let me know. Um, 
I love being out there. Who likes being outdoors for church? I love this. I love this. Let's take a look around this view here. This is Baltimore. This, this incredible built-up expensive stuff here and this incredible need of repair stuff here. And isn't that Baltimore? I think it is. I think it is. How's this? Is this better? I think it is. Well, we, we come to worship this morning, and I want to say this. Happy Memorial Day. Let's just hear a hand for our veterans who, who uh, gave their lives. Uh, for the noblest of causes, and I'm sure uh, among us we have a history uh, of folks who have given their lives uh, in, uh, for, for the noble causes of freedom uh, uh, in this country, and so we're so grateful. Memory is a funny thing, isn't it? Memorial Day, memory, you know, one of the great, um, I love this city, there's just noises everywhere, and I just tell you. Memories of one of the greatest sins of the Old Testament is forgetfulness, forgetting what God has done. So one of the reasons we remember uh, is is to grow up, is to is to stand on the shoulders of those who've come before us. Now memories this month are tricky, right, Mary Lou? It, it, it's been a hard hard month. Somebody say it's a hard month, and we come to worship this morning in mourning, do we not? As we remember the violence that has gone before us. Um, it's the end of a month that has been marked uh, by a series of mass shootings. There's been murder uh, motivated by racial hatred in Buffalo and Laguna Hills and in Houston. There's been the slaughter this past week of school children and teachers by a young man who had just turned 18 years old the week before. All of us in Baltimore lament the gun violence that visits us in our neighbors' neighborhoods yesterday and perhaps our neighborhood tomorrow. We lament that. Our memories are filled with that. We're in mourning, mourning with a U. Docking, love it. As we pray once again this month for the brokenhearted whose lives have been devastated by a young man with a weapon of war, and I, I, want to, I want to take a moment and pray for teachers and educators of all sorts because they stand in the gap and there is fear there in those spaces. So can I pray for those folks? A lot of you are teachers, a lot of you are educators, a lot of you are administrators. I want you to know that we have your back and you're not alone. Father, we pray for our heroes in the education profession who give uh, every day, they stand in the gap on behalf of children. They signed up to change the world, Lord. And... Uh, and our world circumstances has brought things to them that they didn't count on when they signed up. So we pray that you'll be with them, that you'll be present, that you'll give them a spirit of comfort and holiness to the children that they deal with, and that you will be present in their classrooms in ways that makes a difference that they can, can count on. And we know that you do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So grateful for all of you teachers. Now it seems necessary for me this morning, Marjorie, to say as, as a pastor, uh, that the church ought to advocate with a consistent voice. And I know this, this is going to sound like something that's controversial, and I don't mean it that way at all, but I believe that, that there's a moral question before us as a church. Uh, and I think the church should advocate with a consistent voice for an effort to institute sensible and intelligent ways to reduce gun violence in this country. I do. And I want you to know that I do. In my heart, I don't believe that this is a political issue. I am sincerely, church, not trying to be political or make a statement. But church, I do believe that the church, with a capital C, needs to speak into the moral dimensions of life on this side of heaven every time we have an opportunity. And if you know me, you know I'm not reluctant 
at all to speak into the contemporary issues that can divide us, and I hope to always do so humbly. And when I'm not being humble, you call me out. We'll have coffee, and you call me out. But we do have a charge from the scriptures in multiple places, church, where we must constantly grow our wisdom and our expression of that wisdom, Brendan, into moral theology, into what is God's will for this side of heaven. And to do this, we must differentiate between that which is political and partisan and that which is moral and of God's heaven. In light of scripture and our historical faith, the church faith, our church is never at its best and never, ever remembered with honor when it remains silent. How many times do you remember the church being lifted up a century ago because it remained silent on an important issue? We don't remember that. We remember when the church stands up, and we need to stand up. And as Dr. King once said, I think with great wisdom, the day we fall silent about things that matter in our day is the day our life begins to end. Somebody say amen. The courage of the church throughout history is honored most of all when people of the church put their reputations and their careers and their influence and even their very lives when called to, like teachers are, when they put their lives on the line for the principles of heaven. Enough said. That's, I just wanted to begin with that today in light of all that's happened this month. If you want to have coffee with me to talk about that statement, you let me know. I'll meet you anytime, anywhere. Now, I think that God in his timing uh, and in his wisdom and the scripture, Jamon, in its constant relevance to us as believers throughout history, I think God has reserved for us in this series, God's Handwriting. I think he's reserved for us a text that will help us grow well uh, as we navigate the losses and the lamentations of the month past and the losses ahead, because there are losses ahead. This is a troubled world, and Jesus calls us to be right in the middle of it. This is our fifth stop in the series, and it is perhaps, church, the most poignant personal example of God's handwriting in all of Scripture. And this is in our title. As we witness today, as, as Kathy read, we witness Jesus writing in the sand with his finger. Writing in the sand is our title this morning. So I want you to keep your Bibles open to John chapter 8, the first 11 verses. And I want to simply walk us through it and pause here and there to point out uh, some gospel truths for us to see and embrace. I'm not going to give all the basics of this passage. Many of you are pretty fluent with this story. Many are not. We have preached this story a few times, more than a few times uh, in our history as a church. Today, I want to hone in on a few things that you might not notice if we didn't bring it into the, to the forum. Now, don't forget, Grace City, as we open our, every time you open your Bible, it is a cross-cultural experience. Write that down if you've never thought of it. We often think as Americans, somehow we just get it better than others. We absolutely can understand it. This is a cross-cultural experience every time we open our scripture. Now, Jesus is doing something here in this story that is very strange. It was strange in the ancient Near East, and it's strange for different reasons today in our contemporary scene. As the scene unfolds in the first three verses, which begins at the very last verse of chapter 7 and into the first two verses of chapter 8, Jesus arrives at the temple at dawn after a night spent on the Mount of Olives. 7.53 says, they all went home and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Jesus is homeless. Somebody say homeless. He is spending his night at the Mount of Olives while everybody else goes home. I just want you to know that. I'm not preaching on that. A sizable crowd gathers at dawn at the temple, and because Jesus is coming, this is a normal part of his ministry in these three years of ministry. 
So he did that morning what he so often did, and he began to teach them, this crowd, and the crowd grows. Drama-free so far, right, Mary Lou? It's drama-free. But as verse 3 begins, and you'll see it at home on your, on your screen, as verse 3 begins, John tells, uh, tells us that two different groups arrive. The scribes, or the teachers of the laws, as your translation says, but the, the word in the original says scribes. It does mean teachers of the law. Uh, and the Pharisees arrive. Now, Grace City, you should know that these two terms, these two descriptors, do not mean the same group of people. In this epic, a scribe belonged to a singular profession whose chief concern was to teach and to write concerning the law of God. Writing was a, was a unique skill in the ancient Near East. It was not well, broadly spread. They had been highly educated as writers, and that was their concern, to write and teach about the law of God. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were an explicitly uh, uh, rigid religious party. And as a matter of policy, they separated themselves from, quote, others that they deemed less worthy than themselves. And they were dedicated in a zealous pursuit of obedience to the law of God. Many of the Pharisees were scribes, but not all. And many of the scribes were Pharisees, but not all. They were two different groups that had, a, uh, had much in common. So you may correctly imagine this morning that the Jewish scribes and the theopolitical Pharisees had much in common as they arrived on the scene in the temple that morning. And they had something in mind. Here in verses 3 and 4, they show up together and they take over the scene, but just for a moment, somebody say for a moment, they take over the scene and they transform it, church, into a violent public encounter. And this is something we know how to do in America in this world today. We know how to transform drama-free into drama-full. We know how to make something that was peaceful into something violent, and we can do it in an instant, and that's what's going on here. They interrupt Jesus as they drag a woman into, their, into the midst of all of them, and they say this, teacher, teacher, and it's not with respect. This is with cynicism. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, perhaps the woman, Scott, is covered. Perhaps she's got something draped around her. Perhaps not. But what we do know is she is very definitely the focus of this crowd of men. And it is awful. And the violence seethes around it, seethes around this scene. And John, as he writes this gospel and this story, he wastes no time in clearing up their true motivations behind their dragging this woman into the crowd, into, in front of the crowd, and Jesus. And here it is in verse 5 and the first part of 6. Verse 5, in the law, they say to Jesus, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Stone to death. I'm not talking about stone like drugs. I'm talking about throwing rocks at somebody until you kill them. Now, what do you say, Jesus? What do you say? And verse 6 at the beginning clears it up very quickly. They were using this question, what? As a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. And there we have it. They weren't really concerned with this woman. They weren't concerned with her behavior. They weren't concerned with her at all. They weren't even concerned with upholding the law. We discover here, all of a sudden, the great sin in this passage is not the sin of adultery, but rather a communal sin, a group sin, a tribal sin of violence in an attempt to bring down Christ by destroying a woman who didn't matter to them, by destroying a woman from their own community, using her to get at Jesus. 
So we have this contrast that sort of confuses us as the church. As we look at this scripture and we see this sin of adultery and we see this, this anger uh, and, and this encounter of Jesus with these men and we wonder, what, how do we differentiate here? Because Jesus differentiates here. Matter of fact, Jesus, uh, we see in Matthew 21, Jesus' anger is reserved for groups, for tribes of people who will come after an individual, who will do anything they can to demean, hurt, or do violence to an individual. When, when they, in Matthew 21, when the money changers are, over, are, are, are defiling God in his temple, Jesus, Jesus overturns their tables. A little bit later in the same chapter, he says to the chief elders who are, who are so concerned to undermine um, uh, the, the marginalized people that, that they've dismissed from their presence, he says to the chief elders, guess what, you guys? A prostitute, a tax collector, will enter the kingdom of heaven before you. He goes after the group on behalf of the individual sinner. That's the contrast we see in this story. That's the contrast. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote something in a commentary on passages like I just told you and this passage in John chapter 8. C.S. Lewis wrote something that might surprise you about this contrast of vices. And I want to read it to, to you what he said. It's very short. Uh, and I love C.S. Lewis, so here we go. He says this, if anyone thinks that Christians ought to regard sexual sin or sins of the flesh as the supreme vice, they would be quite wrong. And already you're kind of like, what? He says this, the sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. And then he goes on, all the worst pleasures are purely spiritual, he says. Watch this. It's the pleasure of putting other people in the wrong. It's the pleasure of bossing and patronizing and backbiting. It's the pleasures of power and of hatred and of doing harm. Those are the worst sins. And he, says, he describes it this way. He says, for there are two things inside me. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. We need to study this. And he says, the diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig. Now, in British, prig means snob, okay? That is why a cold, self-righteous snob who goes regularly to, regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. He's just reflecting Jesus' own words. And then he's, he ends with this, and I love it. But of course, it is better to be neither. <laughs> and that's where we are in this text. But Jesus is going after something that is so far above in terms of its evil expression in our world, and we need to take note. We need to take note. Jesus is remarkably kind with individual sinners. This is why sinners, the scripture tells us, sinners were drawn to Jesus. But sinners aren't regularly drawn to us, are they? They're not regularly drawn to church because we have our judgmental, groupy, tribal thing going that, that, that excommunicates them before they can ever walk in the door. He's remarkably kind to individual sinners and remarkably angry with groups of people who would stoop together to diminish and do harm to others. That's where his anger lies. And I'm going to come back to this contrast between tribal and individual sin in a moment. But we have to ask this. What trap are they trying to, to, to catch Jesus in? At the time, church, Israel, as you probably know, was under Roman occupation. And no one was allowed to uh, administer capital punishment without going through the Roman judicial system. So they asked Jesus, now in the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. What do you say? And there's the trap. On the one hand, if Jesus chooses justice, 
and gives the green light to Stoner, as the Jewish law would, would allow, they would out him then to the Roman officials and that would put him in peril with the occupying force. But on the other hand, if Jesus chooses mercy and forbids her from being stoned, they will accuse him of denying the law of God and that would get him in trouble with the Jewish elders, chief priests, and the Jewish people, they hope. It's a brilliant setup, and we're really experts at this today. It's a brilliant setup of a paradox that creates a lose-lose situation. Heads I win, tails you lose. Jeez, it, it seems like there's no way out, doesn't it? Lose-lose. And it is crafted to criminalize and accuse Jesus one way or another and deceive the community. But church, this is where Jesus excels. No one navigates a paradox better than our Lord, Alan. I know, it creates a smile. No one thrives in a paradox better than Jesus. Watch this play out in the second half of verse 6. Watch it at home. Look at it. What do you say? They ask him. What do you say we should do? And Jesus, God's handwriting, here it is. Jesus bent down, started to write on the ground with his finger. What happens when I do this, church? I know at, at home you lose me entirely, but... As soon as I do that, your attention comes at me. Your attention comes at me. Listen, nobody knows what he wrote on the ground. Last week, Jamon preached the writing on the wall in Daniel, and we know exactly what God's finger wrote on that wall. We don't know what he wrote here. It's not told to us. So I'm not going to linger long here, but perhaps, Jamon, it's the same words uh, that he wrote, that God wrote on the wall in Daniel 5. And here, here's the translation of it. Jermon preached a, go back and listen to that sermon. It was prophetic. But in Daniel 5, here's the translation of what God wrote on the wall. And he's saying this to the rulers of the day, the, the Pharisees of the day, if you will. God has numbered the days of your influence and brought it to an end. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And in my mind, that's a real possibility for what Jesus is writing in the sand about these the scribes and the Pharisees that are gathered. You've been weighed and you've been found wanting. But I don't, I, I still lean toward a doodle. I think, I think it's more, even more likely that he bent down to write in the sand for the singular purpose of shifting the attention of the crowd from the woman who is suffering alone to himself. Because as soon as you bend down and begin to write, it's like, what's he, do what's he doing? I think it's an act of stunning kindness on the behalf of this woman. What we do know, Kelly, is that Jesus is profoundly non-anxious in the midst of a spectacle of malevolence. And that's hard for us. He is expert at this. This is something as we grow in Christ, we ought to learn how to be non-anxious in the face of great trouble. So it prompts his accusers to ask him again and again and again until he finally spoke. Look at verse 7 and 8 on your screen at home. Verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, what do you say, Jesus? What do you say? We're going to press this. We're not going to let you off the hook. What do you say? He straightened up from his doodle and he said to them, let any one of you, any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stoops down to write again and waits them out. Don't you love this? Let anyone among you who's without sin, without fault, without iniquity, without any mistake, throw the first stone. Now, along the way here in this passage, you may have wondered, Bob, why aren't you, pre why aren't you asking the question about where was the guy in this drama of adultery? Why did they just bring out the woman? Where's the guy? 
And we've preached that before here. But, but, but let me, for those of you wondering that, why Jesus doesn't call out the guy who'd been with a woman, you should know this in, this in these verses. Jesus calls out all the guys in this scene for their violence. He calls out every guy. I wouldn't, frankly, I wouldn't be surprised if the guy who'd been with the woman was actually in the crowd by now. He calls out every guy for their violence. And with just a few words, Bob, he clothes the woman. He clothes the woman with a shield of protection while he exposes their, her accusers. Who's naked now? Who's been found out now? So look at, look at how they respond in verse 9. Verse 9, at this, those who heard these words from Jesus began to go away one at a time. One at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now it's just Jesus and the woman. But you can bet these guys are still watching from the shadows. They are still watching from the edges. They want to see what's going to happen now. And listen, Grace City, it shouldn't take this kind of drama to teach us that we must grow our capacity to own our own sin. We're pretty good at this as individuals. We're not so good at it when we're in a group. This is a central principle for the family of God. Confession and repentance is always and only the, the one thing that God seeks from us. Confession and repentance. And it is useless, church, to stand on our privilege or our intentions, our reputation, or our sense of self-righteousness at the expense of others. It is absolutely useless. God hates all of that. But most especially when we demean and marginalize others in order to lift ourselves up. He hates that. And I'm going to prove it to you. So in verse 9, the older men drop their stones. They depart the scene first. The younger men do so last. And we typically read this, and you'll hear this preached a lot, as, as if some advantage of age helped these men to acknowledge their sinfulness before the younger ones. Nonsense. Nonsense. Listen, Grace City, in, in my long experience, if we've never, growing up in Christ, if, if we're not good at practicing and become practiced at confession and repentance, being older only predicts that we've had more practice in denial and blaming and self-centeredness. I think it's far more likely that the older ones, more experienced in deception, are the first to realize that they've lost this round. And the sooner they get out of Dodge, the better. Because people have short memories, don't they? People have short memories. So I'm, getting, I'm, getting, I'm leaving the scene. The younger ones are still there with their rocks. They're ready to go because they're young and they're enthusiastic. The older ones are like, yeah, I'll come back, but I got to get out of here now. And listen, there's no confession. There's no repentance on the part of any of these men. They're all still stuck in their sense of self-righteousness. So they entirely miss the opportunity that Jesus has just given. And only the woman takes him up on the opportunity to move toward Jesus. You've heard me say it before. People only hear you when they're moving toward you. They have an opportunity here to move toward Jesus. He has moved toward them. They can come right back. They have an opportunity, and they slink away. And it's the group dynamic, I think, Brendan, that makes this so hard. It's the group dynamic that makes us, that, that, that confirms that it's right to slink away because I'm slinking away with all these brothers. We can just get out of here. The tribe protects us. The tribe affirms us. And we protect and affirm the tribe by doing the same thing. So they slink away, willing to endure the brief embarrassment, but once again, unwilling to own their own wickedness. 
This is our call. Own our own wickedness. I know that sounds hard. It is, but not that hard. It's just real. And there's Christ standing there with arms wide open, as we just say. We slink away, church, from our own ownership of our own sinfulness when that is exactly what Jesus came to save us from. When we slink away, there's no oppor the opportunity is lost. And it's our tribe so often that compels us. We can't face the various realities that all too often our tribal identity is so entrenched that we can never acknowledge when it goes off the mark. It's like, tribe, no, it's me. This is what I belong to. We, we're never wrong. We're never wrong. So they all leave the woman where she was, now alone facing Jesus in the public square. They're still watching from the shadows. You can just bet. Just imagine the scene. And now look at verses 10 and 11, first part of 11. Jesus straightens up, asks her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And I believe her arms are open, wide open. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. And it's this interaction, and I'll, go, I'll get to the end in a minute, but it's this interaction with the woman here that shows us the full heart of the gospel, Grace City. This is where all of us have been at some point with Jesus. Maybe it's when you were 14 like me. Maybe it's every day like me. But it's that time to come face to face with Jesus and surrender. And listen, the same response, this neither do I condemn you. If any of the men had stayed on the scene and moved toward Jesus and lifted their hands, their metaphorical hands, and said, I you're right. I need you. I need he would have said the same thing. This opportunity is, is open to every one of us. Don't think that Jesus is waiting to pound you. He is waiting to say, neither do I condemn you. If only we'll surrender. So here he demonstrates, Jesus demonstrates, Alan, that the paradox of justice and mercy actually meet together at the cross of Christ. They don't conflict. They're in communion with each other. He does not condemn her, and notice he does not condone her sin. Justice and mercy together. Look at the whole of verse 11. She says, no one has condemned me, sir. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now. Here's the challenge for all of us. Go now and leave your life of sin. Somebody say amen. Go now and grow up. Leave behind the childish things. Leave behind the iniquity. Leave behind the, the, gr the grief you, you leave in your wake. Leave it behind and grow up in me. And the men here have missed th this opportunity as they slink away. But the woman now, all alone in the temple square, surrenders to the gospel opportunity that we all have in the wake of Jesus' sacrifice. There is, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, first verse, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Amen. The gospel works when we are finally willing to stand exposed in the light of the gospel. It's hard, but it's lovely. It's difficult to do, but it's marvelous to experience the light of the gospel, fully exposed like this woman, not slink, but not needing to slink away. How many of you would like to not slink away anymore and stand fully exposed? Lean into Jesus. Own your stuff. It's really that simple. Own your stuff. Give it back to him, and he will take it. And this, this I told you I would come back to this contrast of the, of the group malevolence and the individual sinner, and I want to come back to that and lean in on this bef um, before I finish. And, uh, and the worship team can come up, but, but stay with me, because I want to say something that, 
will probably make some of you want to have coffee with me. Um, <laughs> because because it's gonna, this is going to challenge the way we think of our relationship with God and with each other. But that's our church, reconciling people to God and to one another. And I want to lean into something that we learn here in this story. There's a peculiar dynamic in this story. There's a cross-cultural experience in this story. And I don't want you to miss it, particularly in this season where we're experiencing so much loss. And we're living in so much mourning. And there's so much heartache in every one of us. And by the way, if you just want to have coffee because your hearts are broken this month, please, please seek me out for that. The scribes and the Pharisees are individually called to account for their participation in a collective evil. Let me say that again. They are Let the one among you who is without sin. He calls them out individually for a collective expression of evil. Are you with me? This gets a little high theology here, so stay with me. Here's what we see. Each individual man in the story has opted in to a like-minded group. They have chosen who they will align themselves with, and they are like-minded and affirming, and it feels great to be part of this group. They've opted in in order now to rationalize the violence that they intend toward a woman who has little or no value in their universe, by the way, but they're rationalizing their violence to use her to trap and accuse Jesus. And the group has agreed this is a good thing. This is a godly thing. We are right and they are wrong. And the group affirms that. How good are we at that in America today? Are you with me? Nod your heads. Good. Now, ironically, church, it's our selfish, blind individualism when joined together compounds, by choice, compounds massive community evil. When we, when we opt into something that feels good but does harm to others. Stay with me. Church, the practice of individualism leads to a dangerous mis... And, and, you know, America is an individualistic country. We were founded, you know, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstrap. But there's a dangerous miscalculation about our individualism when it comes to our relationship with God. I want to say something really controversial, but stay with me because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back it up. I don't think we have an individual relationship with God or him with us. Don't go away. Are you with me? Our relationship, it's not like Bob and God, go get them. Go get them, Bob and God. We're in it together. Let's go get them, tiger. That leads to trouble. That leads to tribal trouble when I find others who, who will agree with me. Stay with me. I think there's a difference, Kelly, between personal and an individual when it comes to our relationship or when it comes to God's design of our relationships. And the difference, church, lies in the system, Amy. It lies in the system. Amy, Richard, your family pull up on bikes. There's a family of four pulled up on bikes this morning. Am I right? Very cool. By the way, come in on bikes. Even cooler if you come in by boat. That would be awesome. <laughs> this, let, me, let me illustrate. I don't, I don't have individual standalone relationships with my family. I don't. I have a personal relationship with Sue and each of my children, but we're a family of five. And now a family of seven, with marriage and grandchildren, a family of seven adults and four grandchildren. We're a family. 
And the system that we belong to impacts every other relationship, impacts every dimension of a relationship. Stay with me. Here's what I mean. The way I relate to each person in my family is important to me. But at the same time, church, I am just as delighted when they love each other as I am when they love me. Let me say that again. I am just as delighted when they love each other as I am when they love me. I see you nodding, Amy. Aren't you delighted when your daughters love on each other? It just fills us with something. There's something larger than my individual relationships. Something beyond individual is going on because we're family. We all have personal relationships with each other. They're all different because my middle, eldest, youngest, they're, they're all different. So they're different, but each relationship impacts the others. And so in the same way, I don't think God has indiv individual relationships, standalone relationships with us. I think he has personal relationships with each one of us. And therefore, he has a divine stake not only in how he relates to, to us and us to him, but equally... He has a divine stake in how we relate to each other. Does it make sense? He has an enormous stake in how we relate to each other. He sees our human system that he created with love as one body. And he is delighted, church, when we love on each other. He's delighted and he is grieved when we hurt each other. It grieves him just the way it would with your, if your children hurt one another. And it's not just family. I can use the family illustration, but it's teachers too. Teachers are delight. Lil with sharp kids for the last dozen years. Lil, where's Lil? Yeah, there you are. Nod your head, but turn and look at Lil. She's been, she's been running this group of sharp kids. I guarantee you, ask her afterwards, but I guarantee you, Lil loves her kids. She loves those kids. Each one, she can name them from 12 years ago. They're now grown-ups. She loves them each like they're her own. She does. But she's, I think you're even more delighted when they love each other. When they, the, the, they learn how to treat each other well. When they learn how to, to, to lift each other up. It's like the, as small group leaders. You get, who's a small group leader in here? There's a couple of Don't you love it when your small group takes care of each other, Alan? Don't you love that? Coaches love it when a team comes together, don't they, Jemaya? A coach, a coach, when the team finally gets it and start caring for each other, coach doesn't even have to be there. And he's like, this is awesome. It's like in this, I know I'm going a little long, but it's like in the, it's like in the story of the prodigal son. Do you remember that story? The father has a personal relationship with the elder son. He has a personal relationship with the younger son. We see it. But the father in the story is really far more concerned with how the sons relate to each other, right? It's time for you guys to figure this out, he says. So Grace City, being part of an individualistic society can lead us to a grave mistake as Christ followers. We think we only opt in to relationships, John. We only opt into relationships. And so we're te we tend to create like-minded communities that, that will beat each other up. But in God's family economy, and if you write nothing else down, write this down in your head. In God's family economy, in, his, in, in the divine home economics of heaven, in God's family economy, you don't opt into relationships, Kelly. You don't opt in. You inherit relationships, just like a family. 
whether we like it or not, in any given season, we are a family in Christ. And in my counseling experience, people in families who don't like each other, and I see that all the time, they still work for each other's good because what's good for you is good for us. Weirdly. And it's something we've just become very bad at as an American church. We like to beat each other up because we don't think of our relationship to God in terms of our relationship to each other. We think of it solely as individuals, and it's time to give that up. So when Jesus says, come follow me, that is a communal platform, church. That's not, that's, thank you for that applause. It's kind of like the applause for, you know, the 12th place finish at the Masters. Yeah, that's great. Good job. It's a communal platform. Our calling is not to look for and, and opt into relationships that are affirming and easy and like-minded. That's not our calling. Our calling is to recognize that we've been grafted in to this enormous community, this weird, odd, peculiar family of God, and to remain and grow keenly aware of how we fit together and to grow our capacity to love across the aisle like Jesus loves us. Why in the world would Jesus love me as opposed to you? We need to figure that out. So look around. As the, as, begin to play that song, y'all. Look around. Say this to each other. We're all a part of God's family. Say that. Say, I need you. Look across. Say, I need you. Say, look across. Say, I won't harm you. Say, look across and say, I need you to survive. That's our call. We're not opting in. We have inherited each other for good or ill, whether you like it or not. We got each other. So let's go get them. Let's stand and sing about that right now.